another pharma merger, a groundbreaking cystic fibrosis treatment, and everything you need to know about orphan drugs, because this is where the money is. Hi fools, welcome to the healthcare edition of Where the Money Is. I'm David Williamson and I'm joined by my fellow healthcare analyst, Michael Douglas. Michael, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Well, I, I want to start at the top of the show with a note that you have not heard the uh, dulcet tones of our fellow analysts. Uh, I know Monday and Tuesdays, Where the Money Is didn't post. It's actually because Michael killed our in-house competition. Michael, why'd you do that? <laughs> well, actually, what happened, thanks, David, uh, the, what, actually what happened was... The uh, bodies some, are in the storage closet. <laughs> we've had some technical difficulties, and uh, we're, we're hoping to get them resolved, but can't make any promises right now. Sorry to disappoint that it's not more interesting than that. Yeah, the show's maybe lost forever, but we're going to see if we can salvage at least one of them and, and hopefully post that. But uh, today, you have us. And uh, hopefully this works and, and you're hearing it successfully. We have a, a, a pretty jam-packed show. Uh, we got a great question out of the mailbag, uh, some really good tweets. We have a bonus tweet today. I, I had to cram another one in there. But let's start with the headlines. Uh, and it seems like another day, another pharma merger, and not just any sort of merger, an inversion deal, which has been really the, the big story. Uh, Shire, a long-rumored takeover target. It's, it's an Irish company. Uh, looks like someone finally stepped up to the plate, and that someone is AbbVie. Yes, and AbbVie has made clear that part of it uh, looks like it could be taxes. Uh, they paid about 22% tax rate last year. They expect that it could be something more like 13% if they combine with Shire and do the inversion in Ireland. So that's a, that's a really big potential benefit to them. You know, That's pushed a lot of deals that we've been talking about on this show and elsewhere. Pfizer, AstraZeneca, which didn't go through. Uh, it's been Valiant's argument for Allergan. Uh, mm-hmm. Medtronic with Covidian. I mean, the list kind of goes on. Yeah, you have a lot of these companies, they have cash that's trapped overseas, mm-hmm. uh, management's being uh, often compensated on return and invested capital. It's hard mm-hmm. to invest that capital when they don't want to repatriate it to right. pay those taxes. Uh, and so they're just looking at ways, especially in a, you know, sometimes a slower growth environment, mm-hmm. um, you know, if it's post-patent cliff in, in Pfizer's case or if it's just medical devices in the U.S. in general and Medtronics, this is a great way to give your company a nice boost uh, to the bottom line by not paying as much in taxes. Right. What's interesting about this one is that you know you really don't have as much portfolio crossover as we're kind of I think used to seeing. Yep. Uh, you know you've got AbbVie, their big drug is uh, Humira. Rheumatoid arthritis, the number one selling drug in the world. Right. Um, and they've also got a lot of opportunities in uh, hepatitis C. We've been talking extensively about their uh, six pill regimen, and then it's a little cumbersome, yep. but it will be the first. Uh, approved, not off-label, but approved genotype 1 treatment. Exactly. And they've got some other opportunities as well, but you compare that to Shire, they ADHD and orphan drugs. Yeah. We'll be talking more extensively about orphan drugs, but basically very rare diseases. So really not much crossover there. Yeah. Um, so definitely it's, an interesting... Yeah, orphan drugs is definitely the theme of this show. It's, it's so funny because you have orphan drugs, which are prescribed to just a very small sliver mm-hmm. amount of people, and then ADHD drugs, which are seemingly over-prescribed to just about everyone. Well, they're certainly out to a lot of people. Um, <laughs> now, uh, AbbVie has made three uh, bids for Shire thus far. and We're up to, what, $46.5 billion? Yes, and Shire has turned them down. Uh, analysts pulled by Bloomberg are suggesting that AbbVie may have to pay up to about $51 billion, about a 10% uh, up from what they've most recently mm-hmm. offered to go ahead and close the deal. We'll see if that happens. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely worth watching. I think AbbVie will come up. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, consensus is they really are low-balling Shire, despite what they're saying. Uh, what I'm looking for is a potential bidding war, right? Mm-hmm. Because you mentioned Valiant Allergan at the top of the segment. Allergan was rumored to be someone to acquire Shire, right. get that inversion benefit themselves without being gobbled up by, by Valiant. So 
if they're trying to save their company and fend off an acquirer, one of the best ways to do that is to make yourself less attractive to be acquired, and you would do that by going after a company um, like Shire. So it'll be interesting to see if that happens or if Shire tries to defend itself. Um, the white knight scenario. Oh, yeah. Or, or tr- goes and, and, you know, they were rumored to go after possibly MPS Pharma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously they acquired Vero Pharma, so mm-hmm. they're, they're not uh, not opposed to making smaller acquisitions. So if they maybe they want to bulk up a little bit as well. But I don't think that will deter AbbVie if they make just a, you know, a, a small three, four, five billion dollar purchase. Right. All right. Well, let's move on from one. Uh, actually, slight transition, slight transition before we get back in the orphan drug kick. Uh <laughs> Earnings? Yep. Um, not really earnings season yet, but we, we had some recent results from two of the pharmacies. These are companies that, that many of our viewers walk into all the time. We have Rite Aid and Walgreen. And uh, if we can put the headline up, it uh, there's definitely a, a similarity between the two, uh, both, uh, both from us. But Rite Aid's earnings missed the mark last quarter, and Walgreen's earnings missed the mark. So, so Michael, why, why are earnings missing the mark? And, and we have you know, Rite Aid reducing 2015 guidance, mm-hmm. and we have Walgreen's, uh, they missed by, what, three cents a share? Right, exactly. So you, know, you, had, you had Rite Aid. Now, they met street uh, estimates of earnings per share of four cents a share. Keep in mind, though, that was a 55% decline from first quarter last year. So that's... Low expectations, let's say, that they met. Um, they slightly beat on revenue of $6.5 billion, which was up a little bit. Um, Walgreens, as you mentioned, missed on earnings. $0.91 cents a share was $0.03 cents off from analyst estimates of $0.94 cents a share. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they had a Q3 revenue of a little over $19 billion. It was a nice 6% bump, and that was in line with estimates. Um, you know, I think in, in both cases, this was... Um, there were some common threads. I mean, we, we, we saw drug, uh, you know, inflation, uh, generic drug inflation and reimbursement pressures called out. Yeah, particularly I think the reimbursement pressures. Listen, we're in an austerity environment. People are uh, insurers, uh, PBMs are looking for ways to save money. Uh, and part of that makes sense to go ahead and target the pharmacies. That said, I think there are some definitely some silver linings and some things that long-term investors will want to be watching for at mm-hmm. these companies just moving forward. Um, the first, Walgreens. Alliance Boots, yep. right? I mean, that's 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 really the big thing. I think that it's could, another one of these inversion deals. Uh, potentially, potentially, yes, uh, so very likely. Uh, yeah, <laughs> pretty much a slam dunk. It, it that it does seem pretty likely. So um, they. Uh, Purchased 45% of Alliance Boots back in 2012. Um, they have the opportunity to buy the other 55% for 9.5 billion uh, in for in a six-month window in 2015. Um, and just about everyone expects that to happen. I think so. Yeah, uh, and, and you know they were able to get some synergies because of uh, uh, combining operations of 400 to 450 million this year is what they're mm-hmm. estimating, which was up. Uh, from what they'd been estimating previous to this quarter. So yay, good yeah. news, cost synergies. Um, but then there's also that potential, you know, the potential inversion deal, uh, Alliance Beats of Swiss. You know, you also have potential benefits um, with a combination and a better international yeah. footprint. Um, also, same store sales in Walgreens were pretty good. You know, comp front-end sales were up 2.2% despite a traffic decrease. And you had same store script sales up 6.3%. We should get uh, more... Clarity. There's going to be an investor call later mm-hmm. this summer about uh, what what they've dubbed sort of step two of that that deal. Right. Uh, so we should get more clarity. I think uh, Walgreens investors should watch that carefully. Anything uh, catch your eye with Rite Aid? Well, there there are two things I think that people want to watch really closely with Rite Aid going forward. Uh, the first Is one of them McKesson. 
Uh, no, actually. So three things. Yeah, I guess three things. So I'll tell two, and you tell the okay, other. Well, McKesson obviously they have the the deal where they're they're outsourcing some mm-hmm. of uh, some of their distribution to McKesson. Uh, it's it's definitely a positive. I think there's going to be you know pretty good savings there, 250 million. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's ramping up a little more slowly than and, they'd expected, yeah. which is part of the reason that they didn't do so well on earnings this past. It, exactly. Uh, so so what are your two? Well, so so the two I was really interested in, um, and actually last night my wife and I uh, went on a date. But first she wanted to get her hair. Haircut, and there was a Rite Aid actually in the local um, uh, local mall, and so or the local shopping center. And so I actually went ahead and walked in. It's one of the new wellness format Rite Aids, and it looks a lot nicer. There's really cool opportunities. I, I didn't bring my wallet in with me, and it's fortunate because I actually almost bought several things. And Rite Aid, <laughs> Rite Aid has talked about how these new wellness formats. You're such a nerd. Yeah, I know. I, I, this is what I do on my night off, apparently. Um, but Rite Aid. Date night. Let's go to Rite Aid. <laughs> Well, okay, we're debuting a new store format. We got sushi after that. Okay, it was fun. She was getting her hair cut, so it was fun. Uh, <laughs> but you know, this new wellness format, right? It's been talking about how it uh, outperforms in script count, in comps. Um, it's a little bit more of this idea of sort of whole health. And they remodeled 105 of them to get to 1325 out of the total score, store count of 4581. It's about a little over a quarter. That's really good news, something we want to watch moving forward because these outperform other Rite Aid stores uh, in most metrics. And the second, of course, is retail clinics. Finally, they're getting into them. Ready Clinic, they're planning on opening 70 over the next 18 months. That's nowhere close to what CVS and Walgreens have, yep. um, but it's a good opportunity. Well, and I think uh, if you look at what they're doing, it's kind of mimicking the CVS model, right? Because CVS mm-hmm. ditched cigarettes. They're trying to promote themselves as more of a wellness business mm-hmm. and not uh, you know, a convenience store that also sells drugs. Right. And, you know, you talk about Minute Clinic. They've been incredibly aggressive on that expansion. Very. And and I think it would serve the other pharmacies well. I think they're playing sort of catch-up to Mm -hmm. CVS's lead. So, you know, when I take a look at these stocks, uh, you know, I, I think... There are some short-term challenges, but mm-hmm. I, I think uh, you know certainly in Walgreens' case, there's there's a catalyst coming up. Uh, but I, but I think the pharmacy space is really interesting. But I, I, I still think CVS is the best-in-class player. Well, they've they've just done a better job of controlling for things. I mean, this idea that basically you can have your script written and then fill it at the same place. What a great idea, right? I mean, talk about a sticky relationship. Talk about sort of starting and ending that mm-hmm. chain right at the same place. It's a brilliant idea. It's smart that Walgreens and Reddit are playing catch-up, but at the end of the day, they are playing catch-up. Yep. All right, well, let's move on to uh, the headline I teased at the top of the show, groundbreaking cystic fibrosis treatment. This gets us back in the, the orphan drug bandwagon. Yeah, after a minor detour. Minor detour. <laughs> so there's a stock, Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Uh, it was up 40% in a single day this week uh, on a successful phase three trial for a cystic fibrosis combo treatment, uh, Kaleidico, with another experimental drug mm-hmm. uh, that they have. And what this would do is move their treatment option. It works on a mutation in cystic fibrosis. Kaleidico works on about 2 to 5% of right. the CF population. This combination treatment would treat almost 50%. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's just huge. And, and to put sort of Vertex in perspective and why a 40% jump is so big, it's a $20 billion company. This right. is not a fly-by-night biotech. Uh, what do you think about Vertex and, and this drug? Well, I, you know, I've got to say, I think the, the drug's opportunities are really interesting. You know, this is a, a large unmet need population, and so there's some really good, really big sales opportunities. I mean, the sales numbers we're seeing are in the multi-billion dollar range. Mm-hmm. This looks very likely to be a blockbuster treatment yep. if it's approved, and approval seems pretty likely given that there isn't really 
Yeah, Aren't really that many other good opportunities. Global peak sales are somewhere in that four to five billion dollar range. Those are the numbers I've seen as well. And right now, Kaleidico, just for that uh, small mutation, did uh, three hundred seventy million. Yeah. in 2013. And that's in part because of its high price tag, which we'll get yes. to in a minute with Orphan Drugs. We're, we're going to keep keep pushing this off. Um, I've got to say, you know, Vertex had some really bad luck last year, right? The whole hepatitis C thing. They uh, Insivac was sort of supposed to be the next generation. It was best in class. It was for like a year. And then Gilead Savaldi just came in and swamped it, and swamped the entire market. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know what? Though it helped fund basically development of the cystic fibrosis franchise. Right. So, uh, you know, Incivex sales have basically fallen off the map. They're mm-hmm. almost non-existent at this point because why would you take something with interferon uh, that has a much worse cure rate than something you could take without? That's that's just an easier treatment regimen. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't really want a couple of months of flu-like symptoms to try and to try and cure a disease. It's just not fun. Exactly. Um, so it's easier to, to go the other way, and that's where people have gone. Um, that said, you know, Vertex has got some interesting opportunities, but I. A lot of it really is kind of tied to this one uh, one combination. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, they're a $20 billion company, and you, you see they have several approved drugs, but they, in a lot of ways, are kind of that one-trick biotech because mm-hmm. they're really focused on this this uh, indication. You know, it's sort of interesting. I was looking at the trial data. Mm-hmm. It's kind of murky to me, uh, it, and it's a little confusing. The trials were certainly successful. Right. They hit their primary endpoint. Uh, And, you know, given the unmet need in cystic fibrosis, this is the only drug that treats the underlying cause and not just the symptoms. Uh, And it has a a clean safety profile. Mm -hmm. I fully expect it to get FDA approved. I I don't think they'll hold this back. But you you dig into some of the data, you know, the... uh, the percent benefit was was lower than I think a lot of people would like in, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, clinical significance. Uh, also, the 400 milligram group underperformed in one trial and overperformed in the other. And it, it, you don't like to see that sort of variability because the higher dose should be more effective. Usually, the high doses get scaled back because of you know safety issues and, right. and complications. But in this case, the data were a little all over the map, and, and so it, it's a red flag. Now, is it? A red flag, given the clean safety profile in the treatment area, no. Right. Uh, you know, if this were a different indication, uh, I think investors would have a right to be concerned. Uh, this is a stock that has gone on just a tremendous run. It's a $20 billion company, peak sales around $5 billion. Yes, they have other things, and, and um, you know, yes, I think this, this helps validate their platform and, mm-hmm. and all that, but um, I do wonder if shares have run up Maybe a little more than investors who are new to the story should uh, should be jumping in at. I, I would I would agree with that. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's talk a little about orphan drugs. I think a little more uh, because they've been sort of teased through the show. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a drug sort of drug type that's that's somewhat new. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were for very small portions of the population. You know, rare genetic disorders. You know. Sometimes there might only be 500 cases in the United States or mm-hmm. 2,000 cases. Or in the world. Or in the, yeah. Exactly. And previously, it wasn't worth it for drug companies to uh, really develop a drug for such a niche population. But we've seen regulation come in uh, and really help encourage these drug companies to, to do this. Uh, so since 1983, this is interesting, there have been 2,900 orphan drug designations. There's 450 approved orphan drugs and this shows how excited Big Pharma and Biotech is about this, there's another 450 in the pipeline. So wow. potentially doubling. Now, obviously, not all those will make it through. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I do feel like we do have somewhat of a higher success rate 
on some of these orphan drugs, but that's just by my gut. I actually don't have any data backing up what I'm saying. Right. Uh, but there are some some interesting nuances to you know to pricing and to uh, the stocks that are out there that are that are working on these. Well, and by nuances you mean I think pricing is way way higher for a lot of these orphan drugs yep. than for a lot of other drugs. And so the sort of pair pushback that you were seeing with things like Gilead Savaldi really hasn't come over into orphan drugs because insurers haven't been so concerned. I think about paying for. A handful of people. You know, if you've got 30 people total who have such a disease in your entire book of business, you can afford to pay the big bucks for uh, them to get that um, that treatment. Yep, um, exactly. And, you know, when you take a look at some of the top 10 treatments, I'm going to read off. These are going to be a bunch of companies we're going to touch on. Yeah. Uh, you know, the most expensive drug in the world is Alexion Soliris. Mm-hmm. $409,000 a year. Yep. Every year. Yep. Um, you know, Shire has a drug that's three hundred seventy-five thousand mm-hmm. um, for a uh, metabolic disorder, Hunter syndrome, uh, and that was indicated that only five hundred Americans have that. Mm-hmm. Um, Biomarin, Naglazyme, three hundred sixty-five thousand. Virofarma, which was purchased by Shire, Sinrise, three hundred fifty thousand. So uh, you're kind of getting an idea why these are so attractive to, to pharmaceutical companies because you also not only have the high pricing, you generally have the market to yourself. Yeah. Now that said. While orphan drugs are exciting and very interesting, I think we have to we have to put in the usual caveats that we do with biotechs, right? Uh, for me, when I'm looking at a biotech, I want to see a late stage pipeline, mm-hmm. even if it's for orphan indications, because they don't always get through. Um, it, you know, as you mentioned, 2,900 drugs have gotten orphan designations; only 450 right. are on the market. Yep. Um, so that that tells you something. There is still a fail rate there, even if it's perhaps a, you know not as much of a fail rate. Uh, as others. Uh, and the second is I want to see large, expensive, expansive pipelines. I, I really tend not to like one-trick ponies. So that said, I think there are a handful of orphan drug makers we could encourage investors to at least dig into a little deeper and, and talk about. I mean, the top three that come to mind for me, Shire, Isis, and Alexion. So, so which one, how do we, we want to do this? Um, well, we can start with my favorite, I guess, which is probably ISIS. Okay. Uh, they just have just a robust yeah, pipeline. You are pretty ISIS. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. You know, and it's funny because I started off a little skeptical of ISIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a partner with Sanofi, mm-hmm. which uh, actually may be a nice roundabout way. I'll probably touch on that at the end to uh, to play orphan drugs. Mm-hmm. But um, they have partnerships, quite frankly, all over the industry. Oh, yeah. And they Astra, have, Biogen, yeah. Sanofi, Glaxo. I mean, all the big pharma. One of teams. One of if not the deepest pipelines, especially for a company its size. Yes. Uh, and they've gotten, you know, they have an approved drug, Juxtapid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you take a look at what ISIS is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly... Or, the, they, they have Kynamro. They have Kynamro. I, 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 okay. I always flip I said Juxtapid and then I paused because I'm like, oh, or was it Kynamro? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, two it, drugs were approved to do the same thing at the same time, HOFH, which is another orphan drug disease. Yes. Uh, well, and the thing is that, you know, Kynamro hasn't been like a, a huge seller for ISIS, right? I mean, it's, it's partnered no. with Sanofi's uh, Genzyme unit. They got $8.5 million from uh, Sanofi last quarter for it. Uh, really not much money. Um, but that said, you know, the nice thing about them is that they've just got so many different opportunities. They're constantly in their hitting milestones. And yeah. So they actually are, even though they don't have any drugs on the market because they have so many development deals, it's almost like they are getting these sort of incremental revenues. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really cool opportunity. Uh, Shire, since we've already talked about it, that, that'll yeah. be an easy one for us. Um, it, one of the cool things about Shire is it's kind of a hybrid play anyway, right? I mean, you've got, uh, you've got these um, orphan drugs. 
Mm-hmm. And you already talked about a couple of them, Vera Farms, uh, Sinrise, and then um, the other more expensive one. But they've also yep. got a- these ADHD drugs. Elipris. Um, yeah, Elipris. Um, they've also got these ADHD drugs that are just bringing in a ton of money and have a, a really broad patient population. They have uh, a next-gen ADHD drug coming out, too, a 16-hour dosing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, what's cool about Shires, they actually even pay a dividend. I mean, it's tiny, right? <laughs> I mean, it's less than a percent. But they even pay a dividend, which tells you that you've got a it's large... There, yeah, you've growth got a, potential. You've got a large, stable company yep. that has got a lot of opportunity. And if you if you buy management's growth expectations, at least, what they have said in response to AbbVie, where AbbVie was like, well, you're really only worth, you know, $46.5 billion. They said, well, you know, we expect to be making $10 billion a year in a few years. Um, then and they have been posting, quite frankly, best-in-class growth. When double digit. To, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been really incredible. I think Q1 product sales for 2014 were up 19% to Q1 of 2013. So really good news there. It's an expansive pipeline. It's a nice company, and I'm pretty interested in that. Um, third one, Alexion. Yeah, I mean, Solaris, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> ironically, uh, breaking my own rule a little bit here. It's it, a one-trick it, pony. It's kind of a one-trick pony. Uh, they have a, they have a couple things in the pipeline. As Asphetase Alpha. Alpha and, and a couple uh, preclinical assets as well. Mm-hmm. But, but really, it's about Solaris and expanding mm-hmm. Solaris's indications. Well, and that's been a big part of it is that Solaris has been um, – I mean, they've just got all these add-on, potential add-on indications. I mean, that's a fantastic opportunity for Solaris to grow its uh, its strength. And, and, you know, the numbers I keep seeing for peak sales are in the 4 to $5 billion range. Um, and, you know, considering they did half a, half a billion last quarter, it, we could see that. So really interesting there. So three uh, companies to look at pretty closely. Okay, so final thoughts on orphan drugs? Are there anything else, anything I, to avoid? Or um, I, I, I think I would... I would Point out a Jurion uh, as as one that worries okay. me a little bit. You know, so a Jurion is a competitor of ISIS, right? Exactly. Yes. They've got uh, Juxtapid. Juxtapid, yeah, <laughs> Juxtapid, which competes with Kinamro. Not really been a huge um, a huge seller for them. Uh, it's twenty seven million dollars last quarter. It's a two hundred thousand dollar plus price tag. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it's not. Uh, doing that much in sales is a little bit concerning to me. Um, you know, you look at what they're guiding for this year. They're working on a really razor-thin margin. They expect sales of 100 to 200 million uh, with gap operating expenses, including stock-based compensation, of 185 to 185 million. So that's a really kind of a narrow opportunity. And they don't have anything else in development. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's companies like that that concern me a little bit more. So... Interesting uh, opportunities, great opportunities in a lot of ways. Exciting, but be and, and you see big farmers getting interested too, like Sanofi, yeah. which I think is a broader way of playing it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they've done a lot of work here in mm-hmm. Orphan, and, and they've indicated that's a real growth path for them. But I think, yeah, the, the rules of biotech investing still apply even to Orphan drugs. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move from uh, Orphan drugs to big pharma. Yeah. The opposite. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> let's play our game. We're going to do rank it, and we're going to use the American big farmers. I think it's good for our listeners to get a good handle on uh, where sort of the pharmas rank and what we think about them, Mm -hmm. especially for people who are new to the sector. So the five stocks we're ranking, Bristol-Myers Squibb, this is alphabetical order, so no preference, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Eli Lilly, Johnson & Johnson, not a pure play pharma, but they're a big one, Merck and Pfizer. Rank it, Michael. Uh, I'm going to say J&J, Merck, Pfizer, Bristol, Eli Lilly. Uh, J&J's got, they've just got such... um, uh, such a broad portfolio, right? So you've got the pharma, you've got the consumer goods, you've got the med, med tech devices. Merck, it's MK3475, right? I think those are just fantastic opportunities. And also on Hep C, it could be third to market, and there are some good opportunities there, I think, because of that and because of their recent acquisition uh, to help make that happen. Um, third is Pfizer. Uh, you've got uh, Pablo Ciclip in breast cancer. Really interesting data, really huge opportunity, unmet need. And Boko Kizumab, uh, which is um, sort of the next generation beyond the statins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Then you've got Bristol, Nivolumab, again, an immuno-oncology play. I think there are some good opportunities there. And then finally, Eli Lilly, which has really had a lot of trouble. Uh, Cyramza seems to be kind of one of the better opportunities, and even it has failed two of its three phase threes. Well, I'm sorry, it, it didn't fail in lung cancer. It just didn't do great in it. And solanezumab failed both of its phase threes. That's an Alzheimer's drug, and right. it's, it's going for a third phase three. I have some disagreements with you on this. Um, Sadly, uh, podcast listeners will know I, I'm, a, I'm a huge Hoosier backer, and so it really pains me to uh, rank Lily last. To rank Lily last. I, I, I feel like I have no choice here. Yeah. Uh, I want them to do well. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be too mean on them because I, I like getting invited to cookouts when I go back to Indianapolis. Totally. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, it's tough times. They're losing a lot of revenue there. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, I like Johnson Johnson. They're, they just launched uh, Imbruvica. Uh, obviously, huge opportunity. huge opportunity, but there is a lot more going on. So if you're mm-hmm. talking about a pharma pure play, I don't know if I'd rank them one. I, you know, I think it's so funny that Merck and Bristol have flip flopped a little because people were a little down on Merck's pipeline, but you know, because Bristol looked like they had uh, you know IO locked up, immuno oncology locked up with nivolumab, and then hepatitis C, and then Bristol's hepatitis C drug failed. Merck now has shown up with this better regimen, and sort of I think their perception has have switched a little. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, I like Bristol more, though. They, they've, they've been shown to be more innovative, innovative over time. That's fair. Uh, they traded a premium. I trust their management. They're aggressive at, at making purchases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like how they're reorganizing the company as well. Uh, so I would still probably put Bristol ahead of Merck, but, mm-hmm. but I do like it. Uh, Pfizer, I, I kind of like just because it's trading so cheaply right now. Mm-hmm. They have some egg on their face after the, the blown AstraZeneca deal. Right. But Prevnar, uh, the label expansion for, for the pneumonia vaccine is, is huge. That's going to be Pfizer's top-selling drug. Uh, you know, Pfizer's more about returning value to shareholders at this point. They're sitting on over $30 billion in cash. After yeah. slimming down, they're going to probably sell off their established products unit as well. So... Uh, you know, when you're talking about increased dividends, share buybacks, you know, Pfizer's your your, your player for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that just about covers them all, though. Yeah, I so think that's I, fair. Yeah, I think, I think everyone has their own rankings. There isn't really... Uh, you a know, right or a wrong. A right or a wrong as far as these... Uh, you know, Merck was seen as somewhat stagnant for a while, yeah. but I think their their pipeline has impressed to the upside. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also have a, a Dan Academy, and, and they've changed their R&D process, which was stagnant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Merck, I think, is having a comeback, but, uh, but yeah... I, I think that just about, just about's a, a pretty fair ranking. I think uh, Eli Lilly has to be last, though. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. We have a, a good question from Mark mm-hmm. this week. Uh, Mark writes, I'm really excited about the potential of inhaled insulin, but I'm worried I missed the boat on mankind. Michael, did, uh, did Mark miss the boat? And, and, and for a quick quick. Reference, shares of Mankind are up 375% over the last two years. That puts it in perspective. Uh, They are going for FDA approval. Mm -hmm. Uh, They recently got a positive advisory committee vote. Yep, Uh, for both type 1 and type 2. Diabetes, yep. For their inhaled, it's a mealtime insulin, so, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't remove pinpricks or needle pricks totally, but um, it it would reduce the amount that diabetics would take. I'm going to say in a short answer, yes, you did miss the boat, Mark. They've priced in a lot of optimism now. Uh, I mean, 375%, this is a a company sitting on a pretty hefty market cap that does not have a drug approved, that has relatively little in cash, um, and does not have an announced, at least, marketing partner Mm -hmm. as of right now. So part of the big question there is, you know, if FDA approval occurs, um, then what's going to happen? And the problem is, 
it may be tough for them to get a marketing partner just because of the Exubera flop, right? So right. Pfizer paid billions to license Exubera, uh, and they pulled it pretty quickly when mm-hmm. it was an inhaled insulin, mm-hmm. and now the device was much clunkier. Right, very you know? very different from mankind, but that that taste could still be in Big Pharma's mouth. Yeah, it sort of taints the inhaled insulin market. Now, I think mankind can certainly prove that wrong, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you generally see a a run-up to approval Mm -hmm. in biotech. This is a common phenomenon, a run-up to approval, uh, and then sometimes even a sell-off on approval if people feel pretty confident, if the advisory vote is very strong in favor of. Sell the news. And and, and then then you have to sell the drug. Yeah. So that's where you know the rubber hits the road, and you see a lot of companies if they don't get off to a really strong launch, uh, it's just you know just a long grind down. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm afraid that's what investors who are getting into mankind now, who are just reading about this exciting drug, are going to be faced with uh, if they struggle to sell the drug. Now the market for mankind is huge, mm-hmm. so and, and that. That's also what makes it challenging, right? So if you're a new investor, you hear about this drug, you think about all the diabetics out there, you think how it's recommended for approval in one and two. How it can improve people's lives. Uh, exactly. Yeah. But the reality is, uh, you know, they have to convince doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, there is somewhat of a leeriness of inhaled drugs in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of longstanding diabetics don't mind or at least have gotten used to needle pricks. So, mm-hmm. so mankind's best bet is probably catching newer diabetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. But, but Mark, yeah, I would not, I would not jump in mankind right now. Right. All right. Let's move on to tweet it. And uh, I, you know, I we have a bonus tweet in here, and I, I need to sort of get this uh, off at the top of tweet it. Uh, last week on the show, we talked about the FDA <laughs> and Twitter, and uh, you know how there are new regulations for marketing drugs on Twitter. Uh, and I wouldn't, didn't expect to see an explosion of uh, marketed tweets you know, in my feed. Lo and behold, I'm scrolling through. I see Viking star running back in, in fantasy football number one draft pick, Adrian Peterson. Mm-hmm. And Adrian Peterson tweets, My known allergic trigger is shellfish, so I stay prepared all day. How are you prepared? Question mark with a link. And it's promoted by Mylan. And the link takes you to a page with Mylan, you know, Adrian Peterson's holding a football and he's talking about, you know, drafting kids who, you know, take care of themselves. You know, they want stories. So it's sort of an interactive thing. But, but it, it, it's sort of funny because, A, this, this happened immediately. <laughs> and, B, is it bad that I want to downgrade Adrian Peterson in my, in my fantasy draft now that I know he's allergic to shellfish? I feel like he could miss a game. <laughs> I feel like this is a, this is a weakness. Well, uh, since I'm allergic to cats, I, I can't really criticize them. <laughs> that's kind of been a, been a broader problem for me. Um, but yeah, it's kind of funny that that happened sort of right after we were like, well, yeah, we'll make a big deal. Di- oh, it did. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our first serious tweet, which comes from Fierce Biotech. Mm-hmm. And it's Bristol Myers wraps nivolumab phase 3 cancer trial early on promising survival benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the immuno-oncology drug we just mentioned a second ago in Rankit. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was seen as the first and best-in-class mm-hmm. uh, immuno-oncology drug. It probably won't be first to market. I think Merck is going to beat it, um, sort of rushing it to market in melanoma. But this is, uh, this is really... Really exciting stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, they, they, when you end a trial early because things are going so well, that is fantastic news. Yep. Uh, and you know, this is a BRAF wild type advanced melanoma. They were using it as a front th- frontline therapy. It's a breakthrough designation drug. Um, and so what that means is you have um, 
basically the FDA is going to keep the door open and, and kind of help you hustle through hustle it through faster. So yep. really, really good I mean, they news. unblinded the trial. They gave the people in the placebo group Nivolumab. Because it was just going so well. I mean, yep. that, that is really fantastic news, and it could help them close that gap a little bit. Yeah, Bristol was up about 2% on the news, mm-hmm. and you know I think people have seen them losing the lead for immuno-oncology, but they have a really deep immuno-oncology pipeline. Yeah. It's not just about nivolumab. That is sort of the, the center, the cornerstone that everything else is built around, but mm-hmm. it's a great drug. You know, we still have to see all the data to see which PD-1 drug is the best or if they're all sort of interchangeable. Uh, plus, there are, you know, other drugs that attack the pathway slightly differently. So, it, it's an exciting time. Uh, you know, obviously, there's still a lot to play out between mm-hmm. Bristol and Merck and, and some of their other competitors as well, but uh, great news. Yeah. Great news. All right, let's move on to uh, a tweet from Deloitte. And Deloitte says, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to building an accountable care organization. Now, Michael, I know ACOs are near and dear to your heart. Very. (laughs) Do do you believe there is no one-size-fits-all approach, or or are all ACOs a size six? (laughs) I would agree that uh, that there's no one-size-fits-all for ACOs. Um, I think you trolled me a little bit there, and I I appreciate (laughs) that. Uh, You know, only only got a minute here, right? This is a tweet, so we're going to try and keep it short. But um, the thing with accountable care organizations is that basically instead of having uh, paying a, a hospital or a provider, a doctor, whoever, for more tests and more procedures and, and Band-Aids and whatever, you're going to pay them to help make sure that that patient doesn't come back in because, you know, you were able to make sure that they didn't, um, you know, that they treated their diabetes carefully after they left, mm-hmm. um, that they helped avoid congestive heart failure, these ambulatory care-sensitive conditions, as they're called. Um, when you look at stocks that are, I think, really interesting in the ACO space, the first one, Aetna. Um, and it definitely comes to mind. What's sort of interesting is people, I think, thought the ACO model would disrupt the insurers, but the insurers are actually going are after the ACO model. racing it. And the yeah. thing is that there are some disruptions going on, and I think you and I should do a deep dive on that sometime in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. Yep. Um, but... You know, you look at Aetna, they're playing hard in ACOs. I mean, they are, um, they plan to have 45% of their costs flowing through some kind of risk based, they call it risk based, value based, ACO, whatever. A contract along those lines by 2017. That's enormous. That's a humongous disruption to their business model. One, they think that's going to be very positive and profitable for them longer term, in part because it means they can more carefully model their costs, mm-hmm. right? If you're, if you're saying, hey, hospital, you know, if you're able to keep people healthier than expected, you get to keep some of the extra money. If they're sicker than expected, you foot some of the extra bill. Then the insurer can say, okay, this is our baseline. This is what we expect our medical cost ratio to be. Yep. What percentage of premiums we expect to pay out. The, the other area, telehealth. Um, and I think that's a really interesting opportunity because if you want to help somebody with a chronic disease, being able to uh, chat with them online or, mm-hmm. or talk to them through a video or something like that is a really interesting opportunity to go ahead and make sure that they are keeping on their regimens. Uh, WellPoint is playing in this space pretty hard. Um, uh, the Live Health Online uh, idea that they've rolled out, uh, it's $49 for a 10-minute session. You can do it on your iPad. They've got great little pictures of people on their iPads. And uh, in states that allow it, a physician can even prescribe you a drug. This is a great opportunity to identify something early, prevent it from becoming a really big and expensive emergency room visit. ACOs yep. are fascinating, and we'll want to talk more it's about really it. It's really the way healthcare in this country is changing, and yeah. it's the future of healthcare. So watching it sort of take shape and bud and transform, it's, it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to our final tweet. Uh, unfortunately, we've, we've come to the end of the show, but Lilypad, uh, which I believe is Eli Lilly's uh, Twitter, says mm-hmm. uh, sports can teach us a lot about hashtag biotech and medical discovery. Now that they're at the, uh, the Bio 2014 conference. Uh-huh. Uh, Michael, wh- what has sports taught you about biotech <laughs> and medical discovery? Um, 
Is there no crying in biotech? <laughs> Probably not. I don't know. I think there's a lot of crying in biotech, actually. Maybe uh, work and play nice with others. You know, that's important in a team. You know, you can't just have the one prima donna that's taking everybody else out. And uh, same thing in a... Um, in, uh, a lot of these successful biotechs are working with other companies, and that's what's helping them step up. Uh, collaborations are huge, especially yeah. you know these companies that can't afford development. They have great science, they have great mm-hmm. ideas, uh, good platforms. You know, you take a look at ISIS, mm-hmm. uh, the way they've partnered with everyone. I think that showed, that shows uh, how it's partnered. It, it, drug development is be, is a team approach, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily you don't want to be the the hero betting everything on it. Now, when it comes to biotech investing. Um, I think when when things go bad, the the, the no crying crying quote's not bad. Also, you know, if, if a biotech I invest in blows up, I uh, you know I rub some dirt on it and walk it off. Mm-hmm. That was that's, that's definitely classic. fair. And, and there are, uh, there are orange oranges at halftime. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of orange slices. All right. Well, thanks for watching, everyone. Uh, stay tuned for more where the monies are. Hopefully this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully the technical problems are behind us. If you have any questions, please email them to hc at fool.com. That's healthcare at fool.com. Um, or hc at fool.com. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for Michael Douglas, I'm David Williamson. Check back to fool.com for all your healthcare and other financial news as well. Fool on.